0: Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're tuning into another episode of 2010 Minutes. I am your host, Tim McCarthy. Today, we have on a mother of two, an international speaker, a nationally recognized humanitarian. I keep saying that word wrong. Humanitarian. I'm going to start over. Human. I always say humanitarian. <laughs> humanitarian. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're tuning into another episode of 2010 Minutes. I am your host, Tim McCarthy. Today, we have on a mother of two, an international speaker, a nationally recognized humanitarian best-selling author a model in a breast cancer survivor the breast cancer disruptor christine handy how are you
1: i'm doing great that's exhausting that's that's the, that bio makes me uh tired
0: you have so <laughs> many feathers in your cap
1: <laughs> a couple more than that too but we'll, we'll talk about them
0: for sure for sure let's start off with this what does mental health mean to you
1: wow that's a loaded question thank you so mm-hmm. much for asking that <laughs> <laughs> no, men, mental health is critical. I, it's, it's such an important conversation that we're having more and more these days, thankfully. I didn't understand the depth of importance of mental health until, until I started to go through major health battles. And to be honest, the physical aspect was tremendous. Like the, the duress and the pain that I went through was disgusting and, and, and overwhelming. But the mental aspect was even more uh, pro- profound. And so, if we go through trauma, which we all will at some point in our life, if we don't address the mental aspect of what happens when we live in, you know, in in this world, then we're missing a whole b- piece of well-being.
0: You said it right. It's like we're all going to experience trauma at some life, and that's like such a kick in the face that you know it's going to happen because that's how life is. We're all going to experience some sort of trauma, whether it's uh, whether it's big or small.
1: Well, it's almost a day. I mean, it can be looked at as a day-to-day event, right? I mean, we're going to walk through today and things are not going to go our way. And I'm not saying that's traumatic, but we have bumps in the road. Everybody does. We're not immune to that. And if we don't address the self-esteem and the self-worth and the self-care and the self-love, we're going to make decisions based on the lack of those things. And that dictates our well-being, right? That's the Mm -hmm. importance of mental health.
0: That's why PMA positive mental attitude is such like a big thing. And it's like, it goes with self-care. You got to try to stay positive in those dark times. So yeah, I, I agree with that.
1: Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because a lot of times when I was going through chemotherapy, people would say, well, just, you know, change your attitude. You just, <laughs> you cannot tell somebody to just change your attitude, but what you can give them are some tools on how to do that. Right. Yeah. If you literally smile. Just smile. Even if you're angry, if you're upset, if you just smile, it changes the chemicals in our body. So that's one tool. There's so many others. But just to say to somebody, yeah, just change your attitude, that does nothing.
0: <laughs> when I'm angry and I try to smile, I look like a psychopath. I'm like, <laughs> like I feel like a, a evil villain. But it works. It does. It really does. Because I start laughing about it. I'm like, I must exactly. look so crazy the way I'm smiling right now.
1: Right, exactly. Then you're laughing and then those chemicals are going out through your body and that helps too.
0: Yeah, it's like my motto here. It's like break the stigma by cracking a smile. So, I'm with you. Exactly. There are many places to start off like we were talking about, but let's hear about you being a best-selling author, Walk Beside Me, a novel. Can you tell us about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so that was kind of my uh re-entrance into the working world after I finished chemotherapy. I started modeling as a child at the age of 11. And when I was going through my health battles, I, I was not working, obviously. And, and so when I completed my chemotherapy, I really, truly believed that my story had purpose and not because it was a flattery. It wasn't flattery at all. And not because it was about me. It was about helping women see, well, helping people in general, see that if you unite, it can save a life, it can change a life. But by, you know, watching Bravo TV and comparing myself to people in my previous life, you know, the one that I was, uh, uh, healthy and, and trying to be somebody that I wasn't, wasn't, um, it, I, I decided that at that point that I needed to write the book about, you know, what to, how, you know, how to live your life and how not to live your life because I'd done it wrong. I had, I'd set up a, a life of materialism and, and basing my self-worth on those material items or what I looked like outside. And so when I wrote my book, which was a very honest portrayal of my life, which by the way, was not flattering. Uh, it was kind of my re-entry into, okay, I'm going to go back and try to contribute to, to the world instead of just take. And so it became a national bestseller pretty quickly. And, and and it was also an important book because there wasn't one in that space. So when I was going through chemotherapy, there were a lot of self-help books that I read read and a lot of gifting um, of books that came my way that were faith-based, and I loved them, and they were very important and helped me. But there wasn't a real story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, about going through chemotherapy and breast cancer. And I think that that was important. I would have liked to have read a book like that. And so that's why I wrote it.
0: Where can people find the book?
1: Um, It's sold in most bookstores. It was published six years ago. I'm actually, I'm going to publish the sequel soon. So grab that grab that book first it um i try to i try to lead people to amazon or go to my website and you can buy it off that that's a good place easy place to buy it it's called walk beside me by christine handy
0: what's the title of the next one have you released that yet
1: uh i have not and it's it's a work i have a working title but i think it's going to change because i i have an editor that i've been working with and and she's she's in favor of changing the title
0: all right all right uh, how does one become a best-selling author? Like, how did that make you feel as well? Because I always wondered, like, it's like, oh, best-selling author. It's like, what, what does that take?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I'm not a New York Times best-selling author. Those are very different. Okay, but, but not to dismiss the success no. that I had at all. I, I would never try to negate my success or to dismiss it. But it, it, I mean, it feels really good. It feels, you know, and when I wrote the book, I said to myself, you know what? If it gets out, great. If it doesn't. It's okay. Like I wasn't, I wasn't dependent on the success of the book, because I had gotten rid of my pride and my ego when I was going through chemotherapy. I was, I got rid of the expectation that the world should take care of me. I needed to take care of me. And if I put a book out into the world and it it wasn't successful, that didn't negate who I was or my work. But it was. It's not flattery to be successful. What it means to me is it's helping people, which was my goal. And so that was that has a profound effect on you.
0: How long did it take you to come, uh, go with that book? How long did it take?
1: It was like birthing a baby. It was nine months.
0: Oh, that is it. So it is like your baby. You know what I mean? It's like my baby. It's
1: like, yeah, it's like my baby, but uh, you know, I really like my book. I've, I've read it several when I, since my book was published in 2016, I've read my book several times when I go through stages of trauma and I need some hope because I go back to that book and think, Wow. I, you know, I went through a lot and and I did get through it. And it, and and to be honest with you, that often gives me hope too.
0: Awesome. So you're also a hum- humanitarian. Let's talk about e-beauty. Can you explain that?
1: E-beauty is a wig exchange program. I am on the advisory board of that amazing company. It was started about 12 years ago by a woman named Carolyn Keller, who is also uh, lives in Miami. And she had gone through breast cancer twice. And she, what she realized was that, like I realized that wigs are very expensive, but there are so many women out there that can't afford a wig. And so she started this program where we redistribute wigs that have been used and we give them to women who cannot afford wigs. And so we have a website called ebeauty.com and we get grant money from L'Oreal and our wigs are washed in and, and styled by the Paul Mitchell salons. We've partnered with them. And so anybody going through treatment who needs a wig, anybody, we have hundreds and thousands in a warehouse in Washington, D.C., can go to ebeauty.com and fill in the information, look and, and ask for the style, the cut, and the color, and we'll ship one out.
0: That's fantastic. That's such a great idea. I like that a lot. Why are wigs so expensive?
1: Well, it depends on the wig. So synthetic wigs are not as expensive, but real hair wigs are very, very expensive. And I'll give you a little vignette from when I was going through chemotherapy. I, it, you know, it, it's a horrible time, right? It's very confusing. It's very painful, physically, emotionally. Uh, it's very scary. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I had young kids. And so, you know, to kind of lighten the load, my mother came over one day and she said, you know, we should go out and get a different wig, like a brunette wig. You've been blonde your whole life and and make it a little bob and and, and just see what it looks like. And so we went out and bought a wig and it was an expensive wig and it was pretty. And I, I put it on. And when my son, who was 11 at the time, came home from school, he looked at me and he came over. And of course, he's 11 years old. He's a boy. He doesn't know how to show. He doesn't know how to speak emotion. He can show it. Right. And he, and he starts crying and he comes over and he grabs the wig and he pulls it off my head and he throws it across the room. Well, of course you can look at that and say, that's disrespectful or that's anger. It wasn't, it wasn't any of those things. Fear translates into anger. He was afraid because he didn't see his mom. He saw a different version of his mom and he needed to see his mom during treatment. And so that was the last time I wore, wore the wig. I gave the wig away. And every day that I woke up, I put a wig on because my children needed to see that I resembled their mother
0: how difficult was it dealing with losing losing your hair
1: well i think it's difficult for probably most people yeah. my my hair was kind of my signature look for my my modeling career so that was at an, a, an another dimension of trauma for me but i'm you know it was it yeah i mean it was i, I don't even know how to describe it I, I i in fact when i go get my hair cut even 8 9 years later i still Sometimes I'll just touch my hair and go, "Oh, my god, it's there?"
0: <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, I say that too when you to
1: get a cut. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> know, it's I I think it can be different for women. I Oh, I can't, yeah. I can't t- speak to how you feel because I'm not a man, but
0: Oh, totally totally different scenario. <laughs> I, I I rock this very well. <laughs> you do. You do. <laughs> so, now you're with another nonprofit, People of Purpose. Uh, I'm not a smart man, but what is recidivism if I'm saying that right? <laughs>
1: You are. Actually, a lot of people can't say that right. So I started to speak in prisons in the state of Florida after I moved to Miami, after my book was published and after I became a motivational speaker. And I was, I spoken with this one prison like several times. And one of the inmates, when he was released, he reached out to me on social media and he said, would you take a meeting with me? And of course I'm a yes woman and I would love to take a meeting with you. And so I drove about an hour and a half to meet with this gentleman. And he said, I'd like to start a nonprofit with you and some other people in the Palm beach area. And what I'd like to do is change the rate of recidivism, recidivism. The rate of recidivism is how often somebody gets out of prison and goes back in the rate of recidivism in Palm beach County at that time was 97%. Wow. Wow. That's a staggering number. It's a It's it's so sad. So I said to him, "Yes, we could work on it." Now five years later, we well, he and I, I'm the president of the organization, created this nonprofit, which we have eleven board members on, and we have we have goals, and we have uh, a facility in Palm Beach County where, when an inmate comes out, we are alerted. We give them brand new clothes because we want them to feel like a human being and not yep. have secondary clothes. And we offer them tools on how to equip them to learn new skills. And so we have ultimately changed the rate of recidivism in Palm Beach County, and we continue to do so. But it's a, it's a passion project for me, and I love it. And, and it's, just, it's just being human, right? Yep. These people deserve a second chance. Like everybody, we all make mistakes. Why, why should I get a second chance and somebody else doesn't? It doesn't make sense to me.
0: That's such a great thing. And to be on the other side of the coin real quick, what would you say to someone that would ask, like, why would you want to help a criminal?
1: I, you know, I've been asked a lot of questions. <laughs> I've never <laughs> been asked that. I, I believe that, I, you know, people have done really horrible things to me in my life. I have been abused in certain ways, and I believe that forgiveness is the only way to heal. And I believe that giving people a second chance is the only way our society should move forward. And so to discriminate because somebody made a very big mistake, it's not, I don't police people. It's not my job. It's not my job to judge. It's not my job to compare. And so if somebody says to me, well, they did this, well... You know, I woke up yesterday and I made a mistake. I mean, really. I I just don't live my life like that.
0: He's such a great person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know what, what I did was I said to myself, what keeps me up at night, right? What yeah. keeps me up, what keeps me up are the well-being of my children. I want them to be faith-filled and happy and and successful in their own right, whatever that means for them. I want I want to help people who've been through what I've been through, either, you know, cancer or bully, you know, I've been bullied in my life as an adult, actually. And I'm not a big fan of bullies. No, No. (laughs) And so, so, but there's other things that keep me up at night, children with cancer, inmates that don't have a a chance because people judge them. There's things, those types of things that kept me up at night, I I wanted to put my feet into and say, I want to help. And so I I have done, I have participated in working on all the charities and the nonprofits and the humanitarian well so far that I, that keep me up at night and i want to continue to do so i every christmas i serve with my children at a place in miami called the lotus house and it's a women it's a women's shelter for battered women i would rather go there every christmas than open a gift any day of the year but especially on christmas day and so we decide how we spend our days we decide how we allocate our time our greatest resource is our time right and for me to have the ability and the luxury of being able to help other people, there's no greater gift.
0: What does that stem from, from wanting to help other people? Is that from a person? Is that from from what?
1: Well, I people gave me their time, the resources. They went out of their way to take care of me for three solid years when I was first my arm, then my my cancer. And my cancer journey was long. And it still continues to some extent. Not that I, I'm cancer-free, but I've had many right. complications. I've had many, many complications. In fact, I had You know, when people were locked down for COVID, I was in the hospital in March of 2020, April of 2020, June of 2020, and had major surgeries. I had a MRSA infection. And so, you know, people have continued to support me and show up for me. I think showing up for people in this world is truly, again, and I I say this a lot, one is a privilege, but two, it's life-saving. Can you imagine how, I mean, there's suicides on the rise. Why? Well, we've been isolated. We felt alone. There's no reason for us to feel alone. We should be building communities, not tearing them apart.
0: Back up a little bit. I'm not sure if this is personal. What happened to your arm?
1: Well, that's a whole nother podcast, but I okay. had a torn, I'm i going to make it as short as possible. I had a torn ligament in my right wrist. I went to the best doctor in Dallas, a, the best orthopedic surgeon, right? I, we've all heard that. Go to this doctor. He's the best. One yeah. that doesn't exist. Nobody is the best at anything, Right. Um, well maybe Michael Phelps, he might've been the best swimmer of, you know, for his generation, but you know what I'm saying? Like, um, we overuse that, you know, the best. So anyway, you trust people when they say, oh, this person's the best. And so that can be misleading. And he did, he performed the surgery. And six weeks after the surgery, he took off the pretty cast that he put on, which I, I thought it was kind of cute. I got it changed every two weeks because it was smelly and dirty. And I wanted pink and I wanted green and I wanted red and it was near Christmas. Yeah. So they took off the pretty cast. And two days later, my arm literally ballooned. My right arm looked like my thigh bone. And so I called my doctor on a Sunday, which by the way, at back then you would not recognize me, I had no self-esteem. And so he said to me that Sunday that I called him and I felt very ashamed to call him on a Sunday. I was putting him out. I was taking time away from him and his family, which is not that was, that stems from my self esteem. And he said, I overiced my arm. And so I took off the ice. And this is a very long story. But for several months, that doctor bullied me so badly. He told me the pain and the swelling was in my head that there was a misfire between my head and my arm, but it was this thing called RSD. Ultimately, about eight months later, after months and months of physical therapy, I decided that I was going to see a second opinion. Now, I go back for a second. I did say to that doctor, I was going to see a second opinion. And he embarrassed me and told me that I was a hysterical housewife and that there was no reason for me to see a, see a second opinion. And which, by the way, I didn't for a long time because I felt so much shame. And he was the authority. And I, I believed that he was, you know, giving me, well, again, it all stems from self-esteem. And so I, ultimately, I went to see a second opinion and they took one x-ray. Every bone in my wrist, wrist was broken. Every single bone in my wrist was broken. I had no cartilage left. I was in surgery that day to scoop out as much infection as they possibly could. I had infection the entire time for nine months. I was going to physical therapy, breaking every single bone in my wrist, every single bone.
0: Jeez.
1: And so ultimately it, my arm is fused. I've not had a single day without chronic pain, physical pain since 2011. And Six weeks after my arm was fused with cadaver bones and cadaver Achilles, a cadaver Achilles tendon was put in my arm, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer.
0: And was, I, getting gaslit by a doctor, thats uh, I would say that's uh, impressive uh, from his standpoint. That's insane.
1: It's, it's an insane story. And people look at me now and they go, how did you allow that to happen? My self-esteem, and this is why self-esteem is so critical. Yeah. Our self-esteem dictates the choices we make that dictates who we listen to and how well we listen to them. Right. I should have dismissed what he was saying from the very beginning. That doesn't make sense that I overrised it. I'm going to go talk to somebody else, but I didn't, I wasn't strong enough in my self-worth and and I'm not blaming myself that he was a doctor. Not that was not my, not on me, but that's why I'm so passionate about teaching women about self-esteem.
0: Fantastic switch it up a little bit. So you're a motivational speaker as well, but what motivates you?
1: That's a good question. Um, what motivates me are the people that respond to what I'm doing and say, I've changed their life. I've changed the trajectory of their life. I've given them hope. You know, when people read my book and they read about the arm and they read about another health issue I had, and they read about, you know, being bullied and they read about getting through cancer all at the same time. I think a lot of people go, huh, if she can deal with all of that and thrive after I can do this. And so my story is, is powerful. It's sad, it's traumatic, but it's also important because it's a very hopeful story. And if you turn on the news, my God, like it's there's, they're they're not showing hopeful stories. They're showing trauma over and over again.
0: Yeah.
1: Wouldn't it be nice to show some hopeful stories so people could feel that, you know, light instead of such darkness in the world.
0: What are keys to motivating somebody?
1: Uh, I think storytelling is the biggest motivator because somewhere inside of my story, it 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 feels people relate to it. So maybe somebody was bullied. Maybe somebody was gaslit. Maybe, maybe it has nothing to do with breast cancer. Maybe it was physical pain. Maybe it was emotional pain. But somewhere in my story, people can relate to it. And it's because I was vulnerable in my story. If we just put you know, the highlight reels out into the world and say, oh, look, look at this beautiful campaign I got. Look at this, I was a model since the age of 11 and look how pretty I am and look how successful I am. That doesn't relate to people. People are suffering. And so if I say to them, you know what? I went through hell. It got really dirty. It got really ugly. I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself. I didn't want to try. I didn't, and all these other aspects of my journey, which are true. If I only share one side, that doesn't help people at all. But if you share the whole picture and you say to somebody, you can go through great pain, but there is purpose, then that changes the trajectory of somebody's life. It doesn't change the trajectory of people's lives to put a cute picture on Instagram and say, be positive.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> Does it ever get frustrating trying to uh, motivate somebody that may that may really need it? Yes,
1: yes, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But you know, we, we trip ourselves up, right? My mother was saying to me this whole time, this man was uh, uh, bullying me. She kept saying to me, you have an infection. Go get a second doctor. And I was like, mom, he's the best doctor. Leave me alone. I'm good. She, She was doing the same thing that I do, like to help other people. And so I can see, I can recognize it, right? But you almost have to go through something, right? We can never be in somebody's shoes because we haven't lived that and i can't relate to certain things right because i haven't lived it but that doesn't mean i have the i don't get to
0: judge it you're a breast cancer survivor dubbed the breast cancer disruptor which is like the badass title like you should be like a professional boxer with that with that <laughs> title how do you feel when I've you hear that it. yeah you definitely earned it how do you feel when you hear that uh that you're a breast cancer survivor
1: gosh you've got some good questions yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I've I've been able to detach myself, which is why I can do three hundred interviews, right? Yeah. I've been able to t- detach myself from that pain, and you know, not completely, but I couldn't do what I do and talk about my story all day long and share whether it's speaking or in a book or modeling or being an influencer. You can't do that 24, you know, 12 hours a day, whatever, and not have some sort of detachment. Because if you go back and share a story that's, you know, trauma and you have PTSD and you're living that, then that's much more difficult. So when I hear breast cancer survivor, I think to myself, well, I am. I try not to think about breast cancer as much as I think a lot of people do because that ignites fear that it can come back. I, I try to just believe that, you know, I, well, one, I have faith that it's not going to, and I don't live my life worried about the outcome. And so if I get cancer tomorrow, I will say to myself, I did the best I could to help humanity in this world. And I'll go out being very content with my life. I don't want that to happen, but if we can just let go of trying to control the outcome because we don't have any control of the outcome. Yep. Then you live a more peaceful life. And so when I hear breast cancer survivor, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a badass. I'm tough. I'm strong. I, I lived through it and I had 28 rounds of chemo and which is a lot. And I sat yeah. in that, I sat in that damn chair 28 times, which is brutal. And I was, you know, many times carried out of that hospital. And that sort of kind of gets my blood pressure up a little bit. But in, but it's also important to remember that because these are the people that I'm trying to inspire. These are the women that are going through it now. And those are the people that I need to touch. So I have to keep those memories, you know, kind of close by as well.
0: You kind of answered it already, but is it ever in the back of your mind that like tomorrow it's like, I I could deal with cancer again? No. That's good. Never. That's Never. Good, that, PMA, positive mental attitude, see?
1: Well, fear can control us. Fear can paralyze us. I don't want to live paralyzed. I don't want to live uh, on some sort of idea or basis that I have any control. I have no control. Like you have no control what's going on inside of your body. I I mean, we can we can control to a certain extent what we think and and how we process and who we allow to talk to us. I'm not talking about that. But if I have a bad cell in my body that turns into cancer, I've got no control over that. So why am I going to worry about something that I have no control over?
0: When did you find out you had breast cancer, and what was that feeling like when you first heard it?
1: October first, two thousand twelve. Which, if you know, breast cancer awareness month is the month of October. So I had to literally October first was some sort of sick joke, right? I had to literally look at pink and advertisements for an entire month. Yeah. After I was just diagnosed, and and now I see that differently, but you no, know, I felt I felt great. Uh, I don't even know what the right word is. Duress, right? I mean, yeah. I was—I had—I had, a, I had a two children, eleven and thirteen, and I have no contemporaries who had breast cancer. I had—I didn't know anybody, and so—and I don't have a history of breast cancer in my family. And I was a self-proclaimed athlete. I'm allergic to sugar. I was the healthiest unhealthy person I knew, and so to go from modeling and thriving and being a you know again a self-proclaimed athlete to a sickly woman with now a fused arm and cadaver bones in her arm and no wrist anymore I was just trying to figure out how to live my life without a wrist. and now I'm facing breast cancer man I quit I was like I don't even want to go on yeah. like my kids i my kids are i'm depleting them they should have a healthy mother they should have a mother that should be able to take care of them and I'm not that so I had this like well i was i had a very much a victim mentality instead of a like being a Vine. But once I figured out that I couldn't control the outcome, that I could fight and show courage each day, then I became a vine to my community and to myself. But man, when you get stuck in that victim mode, it's tough to fight your way out of that.
0: Did you ever, I think you mentioned this earlier, did you ever have suicidal ideations during that?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I, that was, that was the worst stage of it. Yeah. Well, if I can't control whether I'm going to live or die, I'll take myself out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I like...
1: can con- i can control that.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a tough battle when you're going through breast cancer, and then you your mind's going up against you as well.
1: Well, and then you also have like for me, I had all those medications and those uh, chemotherapy, but also you know the the arm—I had surgery after surgery, and I had an infection for months and months. So I had all this stuff going on inside of my body, and I wasn't thinking straight. And mm. I had just been bullied for almost a year by somebody, so my self esteem was. Non existent.
0: You don't have many details when someone's going through it, but what are some things a woman can go through when battling breast cancer that most wouldn't know?
1: I think one of the hardest things is the aftermath because oftentimes women have cheer, you know, being, are being cheered on. They have cheerleaders near them. They're bringing them food, they're texting them, they're, you know, trying to help them during that time. They're trying to help their families. But the aftermath is tough. Because you don't just go from having breast cancer to feeling no fear and to feeling fine. I mean, it took me several years to get, you know, through the uh, chemo brain and the, I mean, I lost three teeth when I went through chemotherapy. There's, there's things, yeah. I mean, there's things that, it it doesn't just affect the cancer cells, it affects healthy cells. And, and I mean, I had a fair amount of complications, but that's not unusual. And you're tired and it takes a long time to reboost your energy. And so I think a lot of people don't realize the aftermath. And I think that's when you need people around you to say, I know this isn't over for you. I know you're scared. And I know that you have these, you know, now different issues going forward. We're still going to stand by you. And I think that that's critical.
0: Well, you answered my next question. What kept you fighting the good fight?
1: Well, I had people around me that, fought for me until I found my own courage and once I found my own courage I knew that I needed to take what they were doing for me and do it for other people they were just teaching me how to live a humanitarian life yeah and they did it they did a really good job now I've taken those tools that they taught me and I've done the same thing just in a different way
0: how important is a support system uh, it's
1: life saving it's yeah. life changing if I didn't have the support system I we would not be I would not be here talking I would have quit because your mind is in a different it's not in a, a healthy place, right? Yeah so that's not easily changed but if you have people showing up for you and they say we care about you, we love you then I kept saying to myself, well if they love me and they care about me and they think I'm worthy, why don't I feel worthy And so when they continued to show up, then I started to change my tune and say, okay well they they're not going to forsake me so why am I forsaking you?
0: Would you say that's the, the best medicine? You know how some people say the best medicine is humor. Would your answer be a support system? Or did you have something like that where you still had a sense of humor?
1: Community is critical. Yeah. Absolutely critical. And even this tiniest, uh, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. You can send somebody a text. You can send somebody an emoji. You can just say, I care. I don't know what to say necessarily, but I care. That goes a long way.
0: I feel like I'm not asking this too personally, um, but like, how is it financially going through something like that? Because that is not cheap at all going through chemotherapy and and having to deal with that. Like, so a lot of people, I feel like, and you may be able to agree, like that's even more stress that they have to deal with on themselves is having to go through uh, the financial issues of it all.
1: I mean, it's the cost is insane. Fortunately, I was able to afford it, but I wasn't obviously working for a very long time. Yeah. I didn't go back. I didn't go back to modeling until, I don't know, like three years ago. So I don't know that burden because I didn't have to deal with it. But my husband at the time knew the burden and he had to deal with it. So he, ha- he still had to go to work. Yeah. Even though I was sick and unhealthy and he still had to step up and take care of the kids more than me because I was a homemaker and I wasn't able to take care of myself, much less the kids. Yeah. I mean, it is cancer is a family disease. It permeates through the family, of course, but also friends and friendships and, and, you know, peripheral
0: people. As a motivational speaker, what are some words of encouragement you would give someone that's going through chemo?
1: Well, I think it's critical self-talk. I mean, whether you're in going through cancer, whether you're going through illness, whether you're going through trauma, whether you're going to through difficulty in relationships, I think what is the most critical of self-talk, how are you talking to yourself? Are you, are you cheering yourself on? Are you criticizing yourself? Are you telling yourself you're not worthy? Are you telling yourself you are worthy? And to be honest with you, for a long time, obviously I didn't feel worthy. And when I started to say, oh, you are worthy, and I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, you are worth these people showing up for you. You are worth showing up for yourself. I would look at myself in the mirror and kind of be like, that's, you're, you're just weird and dirty and gross. That's self-talk, right? So I had to yep. stop those tapes and say, no, you're not weird and dirty and gross. You are a beautiful human being. You are worthy of love. And eventually I believed it. So it takes time. It's not just saying it once and you believe it. It took me months. I was in chemotherapy for 15 months. I probably needed to be in chemotherapy for 15 months to change my entire perspective. But once I was done with my pers- changing my perspective, I won't let anybody tear my self-esteem apart. Yeah. I won't listen to anybody that is critical to me. I don't I don't talk to anybody who tells me that I should be ashamed of anything. And so if you eliminate those voices within yourself and with the peripheral people in your life, if you eliminate all of that noise, you can live a much better, healthier mental life.
0: So you've been a model for 40 years. So you've been modeling since you were one? How 11. <laughs> wow. Um, obviously- how did that start?
1: Because I really wanted to be a model. I was oh, really? really cute. I was just a cute kid. And I, I, uh, I you know, people would say to you, oh, say to me, oh, you're so pretty. You should model. And I really, I took the Kool-Aid. I, I really wanted to do it. <laughs> and my parents weren't so, fa- you know, they weren't big fans. They did not want me to do it. So I had to really, I here's where the grit and determination started way back then. I had to really fight to start working. And because we didn't, you know, I didn't need to work. I was 11 years old, you know. And, but I wanted to work and I was very good at my job. And that wasn't just about showing up as a pretty little girl. I showed up on time. I stayed late. I, you know, I had a very good reputation in the modeling world because I care. I I really paid a lot of attention to the details and I wanted to do a good job. It wasn't just, I wasn't just a pretty face.
0: What is something that most people wouldn't know that goes into modeling? Cause I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, you're just a pretty face. Like that's all you need to do.
1: Well, they're long hours. for sure. And people, it's funny, people will say to me all the time, they'll say, don't you get to keep the clothes? Of course we don't. We, no. we are there to, no.
0: Oh We're man, there, that's a bummer. No.
1: <laughs> We're there to <laughs> model the clothes. We're there to be the the hanger, right? Yeah. Like I, I model in New York fashion week. I model in Miami swim week now, like at my age. And people will say, oh, that's such a pretty dress. You walked in New York fashion week. You know, I, I, did you wear it again? I was like, it's not mine. <laughs> yeah. I don't get to, I don't get to keep it.
0: Who have you modeled for? Was there any funny like uh, modeling jobs that you had?
1: Well, I grew up in St. Louis, and so I was modeling. My first modeling agency was in St. Louis, and I used to do all the catalogs for the Cardinals baseball team. And oh, cool! Yeah, so yeah, I've had some funny. When then I moved. When I moved to Dallas, I worked for Wrangler. I did Bud Light. I did Heineken. I just, you know, like yeah, I've done crazy different stuff, and I've been did a lot of billboards and I was in the Sunday newspaper. Do you remember the newspaper? Oh yeah. I was, yeah, I was the one in the back page doing the JC Penney and the target and the you new know, Neiman Marcus. I was the lingerie and the bathing suits. And yeah, that was my bread and butter. So I probably, kind
0: of, probably seen I'm you. I probably seen you in some
1: ads. Probably. And I was the guest model and I've probably, and, and I, you know, the picture frames that was me in the picture frames <laughs>
0: I've not always lately. wondered that. I've always wondered that like who are these people? Like I like They're models. Yeah. You ever think that people just buy the frame and just keep that photo in there? No,
1: I hope not. <laughs> are there there's there's pictures of me out there. Uh,
0: um yeah. so you modeled for Victoria's Secret uh, as a breastless model just recently. Um how was that?
1: You know it was, it was exciting because the you know, I'm gonna do what I do every single day, whether it's modeling or influencing or speaking or being interviewed, I'm gonna try to get my story out of hope and inspiration. And so I said to my manager like 15 months ago, I was like, let's get to bigger brands because I'm still gonna do the same thing. And now that I'm walking to New York Fashion Week, you know, there's bigger eyes on me. And there have been interesting articles about me walking New York Fashion Week at my age and also as breastless. And so those stories, you know, reach a bigger audience because it's a hopeful story. There's a lot of women who don't have breasts, who are not on social media, who don't know my story. Mm -hmm. And so if I can reach a bigger audience, then that's a win-win because that's the only goal is to inspire and to give people hope. And so Victoria's Secret said yes. And I modeled for them recently and the campaign went very well. There's an amazing 10 minute video uh, on YouTube, Victoria's Secret's YouTube about my journey in my life and what I do now. And and there's some really good takeaways, you know, for women. And so I really loved to work with them. I, I love working with big brands because it's a bigger audience. And of course, it's not self-serving, has nothing to do with me. Right. But if I have the courage to show up without breasts and wear lingerie for Victoria's Secret, somebody might say to themselves, okay, well, I have the courage not to wear a prosthetic today because it's uncomfortable. I don't want to wear it. You see what I'm saying? Like, and I'm not yeah. making that up. I'm not making that up. I get messages like that all the time on social media. I have women who say to me, I have never shown this to my husband. I have scars all over my chest and I don't have a chest. And I wear a bra or a prosthetic or a sports bra to bed at night because I don't want, I'm, I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed. So if I can get up in New York Fashion Week and walk and do, you know, it's a huge platform and on a runway without a chest or Victoria's Secret or any other big brand, then I'm reaching a bigger audience and and that is gratifying because why share your story if it's, you know, well, it's always important to share your story. I don't mean that, but it's going to be, it's more impactful with a bigger audience.
0: You're helping out so many people out there. Your heart is beyond big, my friend. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so you're also, thank you. you're also a Harvard grad, which tip to the cap to you. What is your favorite part about Boston and what was your favorite restaurant uh, around here? Because obviously people know that I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, <laughs> a big Boston fan. So I had to ask this question.
1: Well, it's a, first of all, let me go back to why I went to Harvard, which I think is the most important oh, part okay. of the story. I went back to school because I had chemo brain and I didn't, I couldn't rely on doctors to fix it. First of all, a lot of doctors say, oh, there is no such thing that there is such a thing. There is chemo brain. It exists. It isn't, it is a, it does happen to women. And to dismiss it is so it's gaslighting, and so I said to myself, "Well, I have to fix it because I would drive down the road, and if there wasn't a car on the road, I couldn't remember what side of the road to drive on. Mm. If I was taking, if I was turning to the left or turning to the right, I couldn't remember. And that's how bad the chemo brain was. So I said to myself one day, "I have to fix this." So I started to do puzzles and I started to read, and I couldn't even read a page. I'd reread the page, and so I said, I, I decided that I needed to really help my brain it's like a muscle, right? We go to the gym to work out. We go to, we work on our self-esteem. It's like a muscle too. And, and so I decided, because at that point I had a very strong self-esteem, I wanted to apply to a great school. And if they said no, they said no. And I decided that Harvard was that school. And so they said, yes. And so I went to Harvard and I worked really, I, I worked harder than most people because I had chemo brain. But as I continued my studies and as the program went on, my chemo brain dismissed, so, like it just disintegrated. And so I fixed it. And which is why I've been able to get on you know, a platform and speak for 45 minutes without a single note. Why? Because I fixed my chemo brain. I wasn't able to do that. And so Harvard is, it's a great milestone for me because I know why I did it. I know the motivation. And even sharing that story that motivates people to who have keyboard brain who say, gosh, I can't even read a page of book. Okay, well, now I this is a good example of what I can do. You don't have to apply to Harvard, but maybe take an online class. Yeah. And so my first year at Harvard was 2019. And then I had to do it virtually because yeah. of COVID. So I wasn't at Harvard very long, unfortunately, but I I I love the institution and I, I love the the education that I got, but that's really why I went back.
0: How do you have time to even do this interview right now with everything that you do and done? It's remarkable.
1: Well, I have people that help me. I have a manager who's amazing. Support system. I have a support system, right? I have good people that work for me, but I, but I didn't hire anybody to work for me for several years. I did it all on my own until it got too overwhelming, but I, I am. You know, I work a lot. I work from the moment I wake up. I'll take a walk, but when I'm walking, I have two phones, and I'm usually checking emails and I'm calling people back. I it, I care a lot about helping this world. It ne- the world needs it, and I it's it keeps me up at night that I can be helping more and more people. So
0: the world needs it, but the world needs more people like you.
1: <laughs> well, I hope I'm teaching. I mean, I hope I'm a teacher. I'm hope I'm inspiring and igniting that sort of sense of self-love and self-care and and, and I'm a community builder, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many people that are not that we need more people just to say it like, and that gives somebody an idea. Well, maybe I can be a community builder. Maybe I don't have to feel this fear. That's the goal.
0: Besides being a mother, out of all the titles you hold, which one are you most proud of?
1: Um, I probably model because I'm not talking about when I was modeling at 11, but to walk in New York fashion week without a chest takes a lot of courage to model for Victoria's secret without a chest takes a lot of courage. It's the largest lingerie brand in the world to do that takes a lot of courage and you have to really have a strong self-esteem to put yourself in that position. And like I said, I mean, I pitched them. They didn't, they didn't come searching for me. Mm -hmm. And so to, to accomplish something like that, that I'm very proud of that.
0: Before you walked out, did you have nerves of steel or were you shaking like a leaf?
1: Well, because I've modeled for so many years, I, it was kind of like being at home, right? In front of, you know, that can look, you can look at that bad, you know, negatively or positively in front of a camera. That's kind of like home for me.
0: Let's finish up with these two things. I always ask my guests these questions. The cancer disruptor comes out. What is her, what is her theme song?
1: Unstoppable. Unstoppable.
0: Who sings that? Yeah. Um, can't remember. <laughs> uh, I'm the same way. I can either remember on, artists, I... or I can remember right. song titles. I know.
1: And then Diamonds by Rihanna. Diamonds oh, by Rihanna.
0: Rihanna. Rihanna hits. She's uh, one of the best.
1: I know. I'm gonna find that though. I'm Sia. I'm embarrassed that I forgot that. I listen to that song all the time. Sia. Yeah. Sia. Unstoppable yeah. by Sia or Diamond by Rihanna.
0: Fantastic. Now let's end with this. What are three things that you're grateful for today?
1: My faith above all. Um, My children and a platform to help people.
0: That's fantastic. Where can everyone find you on the internets?
1: I'm out there. (laughs) I'm (laughs) out there. Um, You can Google Christine Handy, but I have a website. I'm on Instagram, Christine Handy 1. And people ask me, why Christine Handy 1? It's because Christine Handy was taken.
0: (laughs) And plus you're the number one. So that's, that works out perfect.
1: Well, um, but I'm on, you know, I'm on the socials. I'm out there so you can find me and reach out to me. Cause I do answer a lot of messages.
0: <laughs> I bet. Well, yeah, that's another thing you do. Again, I don't know how you have time for that as well.
1: Well, usually I'm sitting in traffic. I'll, I'll respond.
0: Oh, don't be, don't be texting and driving.
1: <laughs> oh no, 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 no. When I'm in traffic or I'm at a red light. Okay. Miami has a lot of traffic, so I'm at a red light, and I'll be like, checking messages.
0: Who has worse <laughs> traffic, Miami or Boston?
1: You know, I've only recently started to spend some time in Boston. I think it's I think it's uh, equal.
0: Oh, that's interesting. All right. I have to yeah. go down to well, Miami well, and deal with that.
1: Well, Boston has so many... Weren't those roads built so many years ago, and they didn't widen them? And
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: there's very few spokes, right, out of the city? Yep. I think that's the... Reason for I don't
0: know, yeah. We we have a bridge on Storrow Drive that box trucks always get stuck in because the bridge is so low. Like that's the issues we have. Like everything's very old in Boston. So if anyone visits, you'll see the oldness of it of it all. Well, this has been a lot of fun. You are such a great person, and I'm very happy that you came on this. I'm glad that we're friends now. You have a friend for life, Um, Christine Handy. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for sharing my story. I hope it inspires anybody.
0: It will. It definitely will. That's another episode of 2010 Minutes. Let's break the stigma by cracking a smile. I will see you guys next time.